At the end of the day, people are saying, well, I'm investing money so that I have more money than I, I can you know, go out and party and have all these wonderful, all this money to go and spend. We could do the same thing now. You don't necessarily have to forego hundreds of dollars a week and invest or whatever versus how happy am I going to be if I put some money away in some investments and get spat out in 10 years time with 50 properties and passive income of whatever number it might be. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dash.Insider, where we help you become a better property investor. And today's episode is all about finance. I'm joined by Matt Goodyear from The Happy Finance Company, and we talk about all kinds of things related to finance in 2023, including how to set yourself up to be a better investment product for the banks, which is a very interesting conversation as well. We talk about the three C's of credit assessment. We talk about measuring units of happiness as they relate to your finance and property strategy and so much more. So if you're interested in getting ahead in 2023 as it relates to finance in your property investment portfolio, then this is the episode for you. Now, before we get stuck into it, make sure you hit the subscribe button, hit the like button and share this with somebody else who you think is going to get some value out of this as well. Without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it and I'll see you on the inside. Hi guys, welcome back to Dash.Insider. Joining me on today's episode is Matt Goodyear. He's the co-founder of Happy Finance Company. They are experts and specialists in property investment finance. Matt, I'm really excited to have you here. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. How are you? Nice to finally put a face to the name. It's so funny, isn't it? You know, we uh, the amount of times I hear your name any given week uh, is uh, phenomenal. But this is actually the first time that you and I are getting together to interact. We're doing it on a podcast. So the first interaction we're having, I'm going to try and crack open your skull and pull out some of the juicy bits and give them to everyone. So I hope you're ready for that. Sure. Go for it. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Okay. So obviously... Um, Property investment finance, we all know that real estate investing is a game of finance with a few houses thrown in, 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 in there. Now, it's become more so that in the last 18 months or so with interest rate rises and all of that kind of stuff and more and more people are really thinking about how does all this work? How can I become successful in real estate investing and really starting to pay attention to the role that finance plays in that journey? So, the first question I've got to ask you is is whether you can explain the factors that banks consider when, when they're trying to decide whether or not to approve a loan. Like what actually goes into it? And then also, how can investors set themselves up for success? Because a lot of people are getting knocked back at the moment. And if we can help them to understand how to navigate that better, we'll, we'll better help them get, get to where they want to get to. Sure. I think the the starting point to answer this, there's, I think what I'll do is there's there's this old school sort of credit concept called the three C's of credit. And that is collateral, capacity, and character. So they're the three C's. And if you go to any bank, there'll be a grumpy old credit assessor that's been there for 30, 40 years, and they will always go about the three, three C's of credit. All right. Before we get to that, I think generally speaking, what I what I normally do with new clients is I try to get the two of us thinking the same way. And what I mean by that is everybody refers to them as their home loans. They're not they're not your home loan. That's the main point. What's really going on is when we click submit on an application, the banks will have maths nerds that work for them. And they've got fancy algorithms that work out if they invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in you, how reliably can you drip feed profits back to the bank in the form of interest payments every single month so that they can make a profit and pay dividends to their shareholders, right? So they don't care that the bank has, the, sorry, the bank doesn't care that the house has a white granite kitchen bench top or whatever, and they don't care there's a nice pool in the backyard or whatever it might be. They just want to know, can you drip feed profits back to us every month? 
and recognizing that you're an investment is the start, all right? So if we put that into the three C's, the first C is collateral. And so that is, um, do you have a deposit or do you have equity? Is there something of value looming in the background? So that if they invest $400,000 in you, is there something worth five or $600,000 that they could repossess if all of a sudden you stop paying them? Because what they really want and what they're really looking for is, is there something we can repossess, cover all our legal costs and all the bills and real estate fees and might be a bad sale price at auction. We've got to cover all those expenses and get all our money back. So the first part of it is, do you have some collateral, like a deposit, in order to offer, you know, sort of a safety buffer to the bank? Um, the second part, so the second C is capacity. And the, that bit is, do you earn enough to repay the debt? Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, a lot of the time, people get the collateral and the capacity mixed up. And I think it's easier if we exaggerate the numbers to make the concept a little bit better. If you suddenly inherited a property worth $100 million, you can't just waltz into the bank and go, it's all right, I only want to borrow 80% of it. I just need 80 mil, please because repayments on 80 mil are going to be like 100 grand a week. So do you earn enough to make repayments of 100 grand a week? Probably not. And so that's an extreme example. If you slide that back and say, just because you have a house that's worth a bunch of money doesn't mean you earn enough to repay the proposed debt. And that's what capacity is about. The other sort of component of capacity is it's not whether there's these two sets of figures. There's the figures that clients know and recognize themselves, which is I earn a certain amount of money and the proposed repayments are 100 bucks a week, whatever it is. The banks don't use those real life figures. The banks stress test you. And if you come back to thinking of yourself as an investment again, what they're really looking at is, can you weather the storm over the next 30 years of life? So they're not looking whether you can afford the repayments at 5%. They're working out whether you can make it at 9% or 11% or whatever. They've all got these different calculators and stress tests. They don't care that you eat rice every week or spaghetti or whatever and you live on a dollar a week. They're going to use a statistical average for your living expenses. So someone on your income living in that suburb, we're going to put $3,000 a month into the calculator, whether you spend it or not. And so there's always this, this, this disparity between the real life figures that people know themselves and the actual numbers that the banks use to stress test you and work out whether the loan was going to get approved in the first place. Can I ask, can I ask a question about that though? Because um, uh, you're obviously more of an expert on this than I am, but in my, in kind of my understanding of my experience of that is that there's three, there's three kind of broadly speaking categories. There's low cost of living or medium cost of living and high cost of living. And depending on what information you feed as part of your loan applications they will tend to categorize you in one of those buckets is that kind of is that kind of it uh no there is a sliding scale so uh, i think the thing if you come back and you can recognize the concept that you're an investment the second part is maybe recognizing that every bank invests their money a little bit differently so they're all going to have slightly different rules some banks will just go right there's husband wife 50 grand a year each with two kids, they statistically spend this much. That's the number we're using. There's a whole bunch of bank policy and it gets super technical and complicated, so we won't go into it. But if you send your kids to private schools, 
then obviously your living expenses are going to be more. If you have super duper health insurance, if you drive a Porsche instead of a Prius, there's, so there's this big sliding scale. And I, I think for the purpose of the podcast, it's not necessarily, there's no right answer. It's just that understanding that that sliding scale exists and it's looming in the background and it's done differently at every bank. So based on what you're saying, it, it seems to me like, because a lot of people are looking for a simple heuristic. Okay, if I'm earning a hundred grand, uh, does that mean I can borrow a million dollars or something like that? But it really depends on a wide variety of things. But also, the bank is going to try and work that out themselves. So you could earn a hundred grand and be living in Bondi Beach and be spending all of your money on all kinds of stuff. And then the bank will probably be like, okay, well, we're going to take that into consideration. Vice versa, if you're working, if you're earning a hundred grand, living in Bondi Beach, in the cheapest apartment in Bondi Beach, eating rice every single day, saving seventy percent of your income, they're probably still going to say, yeah, we're going to assess you as if you're probably spending a bit more than that because we don't necessarily believe it or want to take that risk. Is that a kind of a, a fair assessment? Yeah, correct. And once again, it's it's them assessing you as an investment. And so you might be quite happy living on two-minute noodles at the moment, but there's probably going to be a point over the next 30 years where you want to go out to a nice fancy restaurant and that's going to cost you a couple hundred bucks to get dinner. I really like this idea. I know we've got one more C, by the way. I really like this idea of considering yourself as an investment. It's a, it's a definitely a really interesting mindset shift because a lot of people are like, can I borrow some money to go buy an investment? And just in the same way that property investors are looking at, okay, what's the ROI I can get from this particular asset? Does it meet my risk profile? And is it aligned with my financial goals? And is it all of this kind of stuff? That's how investors are making choices based on the properties that they're going to buy. But to a bank, you are just an investment vehicle. So banks have got all of this capital and they have actually many arms in how they distribute capital. Some of them, they actually invest in things like startups and they put it in all kinds of areas. They allocate capital in all kinds of places based on different risk profiles and return profiles. And one of those places that they allocate capital in order to generate a return is mortgages and they're just going to look at every deal like you're a deal like you're a deal to them and they're going okay well what's the return on this what's the what's the risk adjusted return that we can expect from this investment opportunity and are we going to take that bet that's basically what they're saying i think it's a really interesting way for people to start start reframing their thinking about how do they go into these conversations in the best possible light to go well let me tell you all about this investment opportunity, the investment opportunity of me and why this is going to be the best investment opportunity that you can find this year. And that's a really interesting way to start shifting, shifting the mindset around it, hey? Yeah, it is. And it's because every bank goes through that process separately. And so when we use the fancy software and we have appointments with clients, we'll bring up, well, we'll put in the same numbers, 50 grand each year, whatever number it is. And then on screen, there's this big long list of how much each bank will lend you and there's hundreds of thousands of dollars difference between them all. Like for the average couple, normally on average, we're looking at at least three to $500,000 difference in borrowing capacity between banks. Um, the other thing that you sort of, that flagged in my mind as you were speaking was in relation to the interest rates. So different banks, if you can sort of grasp the concept that if a bank invests their money in someone that's safe, they are not expecting a big return on their money. And so that translates into a low interest rate for the client. If they invest in you know, a first home buyer with a 20 grand deposit uh, who needs to leverage themselves to the hilt and only has a casual job that they've been in for six months, it's pretty high risk. They might start, might lose their job and start defaulting. And so that's high risk. And so that's going to translate into a high interest rate. 
because the bank wants a better return on a high risk investment. It makes total sense when you think of this, you know, all these absurd policies and rules that the banks have, it's because they're assessing you as an investment. Mm. I love that. I think it's a really good way to think about it. What's the third C? Third C is character. So you've got to, got to be good little girls and boys and be trustworthy. You know, basic stuff like a credit report. If a bank goes and looks at your credit report and there's, you know, you're bankrupt and you've got bad debts and you can't you know, make repayments on your $2,000 credit card and you've walked in the front door and said, can I borrow half a million dollars? You know, think of it from an assessor's point of view. They're probably not going to think that you can handle half a million dollars when you can't handle a two grand credit card. Um, so there's basic sort of concepts like that about character. Uh, what might be a little bit more familiar with people are bank terms like genuine savings. Uh, so banks have this thing, you know, you need to show that you've saved up enough money over, you know, a 5% deposit over three months or more. That's them looking at your character. Do you have the ability to be responsible, put a little bit of money away bit by bit by bit by bit by bit? That's the character component. And even where banks don't have the genuine savings, they say you can use your rental history. It's the same thing. They're looking at your statement and they're going, what is your character like? Can you make your rental payments each week? Are you trustworthy? That's really interesting. So in a case where people might not have a really long history of genuine savings. So let's use an example. Let's say it's a young uh, early stage investor They've borrowed or they've gotten the bank of mum and dad to give them some capital to get started. Okay, so they didn't save up all the money. But if they can show that they're a responsible individual by having paid rent consistently on time, they don't have overdue bills, they've got a good clean credit history, that'll show enough character that even if they don't have genuine savings because it's come from somewhere else, they'll still be still be evidence that they're going to do the right thing. Is that a reasonable assessment? That's 100% correct at some banks. Yeah, okay. And it, cool. it comes back to they've all got these different rules. But yes, you're 100% correct. So let me ask a question about genuine savings because I always find this one pretty interesting because I've seen quite a lot of clients who have been, you know, allocating their capital into investments, which is quite frankly a lot better than saving, in my opinion. So they might be putting it in shares or crypto or whatever whilst they're building up a deposit. Now, I'm not going to say all the time, but certainly I've seen cases where where banks have, and so the, the clients have then gone, okay, cool, now I want to take all that money out of shares and I want to use it to go buy a property. So they liquidate all the shares, the money goes into the bank account, and then the bank says, well, that's not genuine savings. Can you, do you have any kind of thought? I know you can't speak on behalf of banks, but like, do you have any thoughts on that? That seems like crazy because you can surely you can show evidence to suggest that you're being even more responsible with your money. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I totally understand what you're talking about. I think... The way to address the question or explain it would be to use an extreme example. So let's forget the banks for a second and go, let's say it's you, you're the bank, and one of your mates has come up and gone, oh, Goose, can I can I borrow 50 bucks? There's going to be a level of assessment that you do where they give him 50 bucks. If he goes giving you half a million bucks, there's going to be another, you know, is he reliable? Does he have a job? That sort of stuff. Within the genuine savings concept, what if he came to you and said, oh, mate, I just took a thousand bucks, went down the casino, tripled my money. Now I've got $50,000. Can I borrow another hundred? I'm going to, you know, so you would, it's not necessarily that it's going to take that loan money and waltz down the casino and put it all on black. But from a bank's perspective, there's an element of risk aversion in looming in the background. Is that enough of an extreme example to sort of say the rule I mean, is there for you've a illustrated reason? the point. Yeah, You've illustrated the point, but I mean, 
I don't know, man. I, I think it's pretty spurious. <laughs> when you see people who are not only saving their money but actually putting it into effective investments and then they want to use that capital for something else, the bank's like, well, that's not genuine. It's like, dude, come on. Get a grip. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of rules there. It, once again, did you have the shares for three months is going to be the first question. The buy and sell certificates, old you know, history. Crypto, we won't get into crypto. That's can of worms. Is that gambling? You know, would be the first question from a bank's perspective. Versus yeah, it's an interesting a- question, isn't it? Like, how do you, yeah, it's a very interesting question. Where do you draw the line between investing and gambling? <laughs> That's a really interesting question. Exactly. Like, the more you dig into it, I mean, like, how could you ever know? Like, some people might say that it's not gambling when they're playing blackjack because they know how to play the game, you know? And so that's a super interesting way to think about it as well. I like that. I like that. So so that's the three Cs. So when, when people are thinking about getting loans, a lot of people fixate on things like interest rates and all of this kind of stuff. How, what are your kind of thoughts on how people should navigate some of the pros and cons of like high versus low interest rates versus fixed versus variable, all these different combinations of characteristics that loans can have? Because I kind of see a lot of people getting stuck on this too, and they don't know how they should think about it within the context of being able to continue to invest, because that's kind of really the aim of the game and the way that I see it. It's, it's, how can they set themselves up to be able to continue to borrow money, which doesn't necessarily mean lowest interest rate, necessarily. So what are your thoughts on that? I just jotted down a couple of points. I think if we start with the concept of your investment again, when you take a fixed rate, it's not your fixed home loan, it's the bank's fixed investment. So the bank is then investing $300,000 at 5% for the next three years. If you want to start making extra repayments, you're going to be screwing with their profit margin. And so that's where they're going to penalise you. So there's different rules that are attached to different types of rates. So a fixed rate isn't your fixed home loan, it's their fixed investment. If you are going to sell the property two years into a three-year investment, you're depriving them of the next 12 months, two years, whatever, of profit. Um, They thought they were investing their money for three years. Um, So that's the first sort of thing. Uh, The second thing is with variable, you can do whatever you want, whatever you feel like it. If you want to sell a property, make extra payments, have an offset account, back and forth, back and forth. The trade-off with that is that rate's going to go up, rate's going to go down, you know, go back two or three years. No one was complaining when the rate kept dropping. Now that it's gone back up, everyone's having a bit of a whinge. It's just going back up to what it was four or five years ago. In terms of making the decision or working out what's right, I think I'd maybe suggest people need to be comfortable with the concept that there is no right answer. You know, if I've, I've got a black shirt on today, yesterday I had a white shirt. You know, I'll go out to lunch after this. Am I going to get the chicken or the steak? Like it, you know, in terms of fixed rates, it certainly gives people certainty. So if you're budget conscious and the thought of the repayments jumping 50, 100, $200 a week or whatever it might be is freaking you out and you're not going to be able to sleep at night, then I think the answer is 100%. Let's just fix it. You can sleep for the next two or three years, not with stress. And then we'll, sorted out at the end of that period. And do you think this is something where people can effectively, you know, identify like what's the right thing for them and then apply it carte blanche to every property they buy? So for example, you know, somebody might decide, okay, I'm comfortable at 90% LVR and interest only and variable, right? I'm, I'm cool. I'm there. Does that mean that that becomes their identity and that they become a 90% interest only variable rate investor? And that's just the, the thing that they do on all of their properties and, and vice versa. If somebody, when they're starting, might be a little more cautious and be like, right, I'm going to go on 80% P&I fixed. Does that 
Does that mean that they've categorized themselves or could investors think about this more on a per property basis? And would there any be any kind of, do you have any kind of thoughts around how investors might think about this at different parts of their journey? Yes, I have some thoughts. I think I'll loop around back to the question. I have a lot of clients and there are some clients that take different types of rates on different types of property. I think it comes back to people being really comfortable, once again, understanding there's no right answer. It's the chicken or the steak for lunch. I think the whole point of investing your money is so that you make money at some point in the future. And the way that you get to that point in the future is an individual journey for each individual person. There are pros and cons for both. If you are worried about the decision-making process for a couple that's two incomes, no kids, it's going to be very different to a couple with five kids. They've got braces and school fees and all sorts of things. They might need a lot more flexibility in the products that they choose because they might need to refinance every 12 months, two years, whatever it might be, access equity, pull 10 grand out to go for a family holiday, that sort of thing. Um, And if that's the case, they might need a variable rate. Whereas same family, different suburb might be, we can't afford any fluctuation in the interest rate. Otherwise we won't be able to pay the school bills. And it's not necessarily that there is a right or wrong answer. Once again, it's just that that particular answer is going to make you as either an individual or a couple more happy and be able to sleep each night. Uh, And a lot of the time when I have this conversation, the answer comes back to what is going to help you sleep at night. And whatever that is, that's the right decision. And to remove the whole, this one's $20 a week more or whatever whatever it is, forget the maths of it, what's going to help you sleep at night? Because at the end of the day, we've got to get years into the future to get the benefit. Mm. I love that. I've heard you talk about units of happiness when it comes to um, the concept of finance. I feel like it might be related to what you were just talking about there around the, the sleep at night factor, but it might not be. Do you want to kind of expand on what do you mean by units of happiness when, when in the context of a loan? So that, that well, one, one of the origins of the Happy Finance Company was years and years ago, my wife and I started measuring things in what we called units of happiness. And so you can sit there and look at a spreadsheet all day long. It doesn't help you work out whether buying the chicken or the steak is going to make you happier. And so there's a lot of life decisions. You know, the, you, know you could value time more than money. And to do that, you might take a high interest rate because you can buy the house faster, get it done, own the thing sooner, renovate, jack up the rent, whatever it might be. Uh, But attaching a level of happiness to each of maybe the two or three decisions that you're making and then make the decision based on whatever's going to make you happier. At the end of the day, people are saying, well, I'm investing money so that I have more money than I I can go out and party and have all these wonderful, all this money to go and spend. We could do the same thing now. You don't necessarily have to forego hundreds of dollars a week and invest or whatever. You could go and have a big party, jump on a plane, fly over around the world, have an adventure. You'll have heaps of units of happiness right now with your current income versus how happy am I going to be if I put some money away in some investments and get spat out in 10 years' time with 50 properties and passive income of whatever number it might be. Um I find this generally works a lot with guys like I, you know, the concept of and using the analogy of cars. 
I've wasted a silly amount of money on cars, like most people. Um, it's really nice having really nice cars, but they're also very expensive. And so when you start attaching units of happiness to a car, you know, everyone everyone would love to drive a Land Cruiser, but everyone wants the fuel consumption of a Prius. And so, you know, if we get go for the cheap fuel consumption, we can't drive up the beach and have fun on the weekends with our mates. And and every option in between, dual cabs, SUVs, that sort of thing. And so when you take that over to the investing sort of side of things, you could, you know, if you owned one property outright and it was your goal to just jump in a caravan, fish Australia, you could rent out that one house for 500 bucks a week or 600 bucks a week, jump in a caravan, drive 50 k's up the highway, plonk down, and you've got 500 bucks a week for some bait and a couple of cases of beer and, you know, a bit of food. You could fish for the rest of your life if you just owned one house. And so that might make you really happy. But then other people will say, well, I don't want to live in a caravan for the rest of my life. I want to fly business class around the world. And and so to achieve that level of happiness, I need seven, eight, nine, ten properties, whatever it might equate to. Uh, and so that's that's sort of the the decision-making process around units of happiness. Yeah, I like it. I like it. There's definitely the the macro kind of explanation you you gave then was was really good. Like thinking about like what is the what is the end outcome that you you want to achieve, and then uh, align your actions with that. But then even tying it back to like specifically how you think about getting finance, it's like, yeah, I mean, you could go and get some kind of like super high interest, low zero doc loan, and all of this kind of stuff, and really work the edges. Um, if you were like, if the thing that was going to make you happy was for whatever reason, securing that next deal or, or, or something. But then also, you might look at that and go, if that's my choice, I'm going to choose not to do anything right now. I'm just going to, you know what? There's other things in life that are more important to me than going through what would probably be a very, you know, detailed and probably stressful process to be able to secure that kind of thing. And so really thinking that through and aligning your actions with your happiness, aligning your investment strategy with your happiness, aligning, aligning your, you know, financing strategy with your happiness, aligning, aligning all of your actions with your happiness is a great way to be thinking about it. And I think a lot of, a lot more people need to think about that too. I, I did just think of a uh, reasonably good example to throw out there and I've just lost it again just as quickly. See if I can get it back. What was it? Not lost it. It'll come back to me. That's okay. I wanted to ask you about paying down debt because, and the reason it jogged that is like you were talking about that example where, ah, oh, you know, if you just wanted to go fishing for the rest of your life, one house with no debt on it, you know, blah, 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 maybe two, whatever, whatever the case may be. But do you think that it is a good idea for people to pay down their debt or do you think it is a good idea for people to use more leverage? And there's obviously pros and cons with all of it. And I'd, I'd love to just get your opinion because, of course, you're never going to be able to give this advice to it's millions of people out there. I mean, like everyone's situation is different and we're not going to be sitting here giving anyone, anyone any financial advice, disclaimer, no, not financial advice. But I'd love your opinion on the topic because there's obviously def- different ways to think about it. With leverage, you get a higher return on your capital. How do you think about that? How do I think about it myself is I, I go into a debt, a level of debt that I am comfortable sleeping at night with. That's not necessarily how everybody else thinks. I mean, my wife's parents are a really good example they worked really, really hard and put a lot of money away while the girls were growing up uh, in their family. Uh, they created a nice little portfolio for themselves and their goal was to have no debt at retirement and own all of their properties outright. That was the mindset of you know not owing money to anybody and that made them feel really nice and we've achieved our life goal and et cetera, et cetera. And so I would say, well, that's, that's some units of happiness for them in retirement. Um, 
the flip side of that is a lot of people are really happy between the age of 18 and 65 or whatever retirement age is. And for the majority of that period, we're all going to be in a hell of a lot of debt. And so just because you're in debt doesn't mean that you can't be happy. It's about how you manage that that debt and that that repayments and concept looming in the background. Uh, a lot of people and a lot of clients, we often take a certain amount of money. We call it sleep at night money. And we go, right, we won't spend all 200 grand of your savings. We're just going to put 20 grand aside. We'll invest the other 180. That way, if you lose your tenants, you lose your job, whatever it is, we'll get a little calculator out and we'll go, right, you guys can get fired and you can still make all your repayments and feed your family for the next 12 months, six months, whatever that number is for everyone. Um, and so having a little bit of backup money there often helps people cope with the concept of just because I'm in debt doesn't mean that I can't be happy and I can't get where I'm going. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Do you, do you think, like, I think having that buffer there is a really key piece in having the confidence to know that you can make good choices. I think that's got to be a major factor in it because if you've got $2 million of cash sitting in the bank, then your risk profile on an, is going to be very, very different to if you've got $2,000 in the bank and like this deal could make or break me versus like, yeah, I mean, you know, this deal goes a little bit south, whatever, I've got the cash to pay for it. So do you have any, um, and again, this is, you know, do you have any general kind of thoughts or guidance on how much of a buffer people should think about having, particularly as it relates to property investment? Now, pers- people's personal buffer, like what's good for them is it six months of savings for their living expenses or whatever, you know, if you've got any thoughts on that. But then also thinking about that in the context of a property portfolio too, because, you know, some people say, look, have 90 days of cash in the bank just in case the tenants bail out uh, or 90, 90 days worth of mortgage payments in the bank just in case the tenants bail out, stuff like that. Have you got any thoughts around that you would, would, want, would want to share? Yeah, I think the answer is a blanket answer for everybody. And once again, it's whatever helps you sleep at night. So you've mentioned a couple of things, 60 days, 90 days, six months, whatever it might be. I think people need to take a moment to think about it and go, right, I've got three properties or 10 properties, whatever number it is, and go, for me to feel comfortable and to weather life uh, events like the house burns down, the uh, tenant loses their job and can't, you know, the tenant trashes the joint, what, what you know, a high rise gets built next door to my wonderful little investment and ruins what it's worth, um, whatever that number is, whether it's six months or three months, that's the number. And people just stop and go, what is that number? How many months of repayments is it? And that's the number that they that they should be aiming for. Mm, I love it. I want to shift gears a little bit now because I actually want to ask you about some finance strategy questions. One of the biggest issues that property investors face is getting stuck. They get to a place where they can no longer get more finance to be able to keep going. Now, there's typically three constraints. It's either access to capital, access to debt, or access to cash flow, right? which is tied in with all of those other two as well. So what are some what are some strategies that you might know or even use with any of your clients or any of that kind of stuff to help investors maximize their borrowing capacity or optimize their property portfolio for continued expansion and growth if they want to build a bigger property portfolio? Uh, I would probably start with, so if people understand the concept that the real life figures don't matter when the banks work out whether they invest money in, in you or not. So in the cal- what the calculators do is the most important bit when people are trying to work out how am I going to improve my situation. In the calculators, for want of a better term, you will get hammered if you have credit cards. Even if you don't spend the money on them, 
just having the limit in the background is going to reduce your borrowing capacity significantly. I was literally in a video appointment last night with a client where I said we can cancel the $15,000 credit card or we could knock $170,000 off the purchase price. Which one do you want? And so people understanding that concept of the personal loans, the credit cards, the car loans, they significantly take a massive chunk out of your borrowing capacity. So if you could minimize those things, that would be the first thing. Then when you get out of sort of personal debt into mortgage debt in the calculators, not every bank, but a lot of banks take into consideration the tax implications. And so if you have a lot of non-deductible debt, being your big owner occupied property, your borrowing capacity won't be as big as if it were the same amount of deductible debt. Uh, and so minimizing your non-deductible debt would be my next sort of tip or pointer. Uh, and then the third thing would be maximizing your income. I think one concept generally people don't realize is the bulk of your borrowing capacity comes from your, either your salary or your self-employed income. It's got actually got very, very little to do with rental income. And so sort of visually when you do this or in, in the calculators, what's a good way to ex explain it, in order to get $500 a week in income, you actually have to own that property. To own that property, you have to go into $500,000 of debt to get the $500 a week of income. And so it's it, in the calculator, it's just not sustainable. And it's not that it's not sustainable in real life figures because the real life figures, you might find a really good investment property through a place like Dashdot where it's positive cash flow or it's positively geared. And so it, it's actually really good in the real life figures but then recognizing that in the calculators where the banks work out whether they're actually going to approve the loan in the first place, they don't care what the real life figures are. They don't care that you can rent the property out on Airbnb for 10 grand a week at Christmas because they're going to look at you as an investment and go, yeah, that's at Christmas, but what happens in February? It'll be vacant. Mm. So they're going to use their own set of figures and that is the conservative numbers. They'll stress test, you know, can you afford that? 500 grand at you know eight nine ten percent and let's not put 500 a week in rent in let's put 400 a week in and just to stress test you and that's just the banks being conservative so if people recognize that each investment property that gets loaded into the calculator probably for most people makes the numbers worse each time this is why people run out of borrowing capacity it's because to get that 500 a week in rent They've got to go into half a million dollars of rent each time, of debt each time. Um, and so the bulk of people's borrowing capacity comes from their nine to five or their self-employed income. So maximizing yeah. that is going to maximize their borrowing capacity. But the, the rental income contributes over time. Though. I understand like you've got to get the house for the rental income, but like you then get to add that back, right? So it does, it's not like, it's not a hundred percent absolute. It's like you still get to add back the income from the rent. Is that correct? Or yeah, you do. So the five hundred dollars a week would go in, say. But when they stress test that, it's four hundred dollars a week. And when they stress test the the debt at five hundred, if we go, the repayments in the calculator are at eight percent. So can four hundred dollars a week cover principal and interest repayments on four hundred thousand dollars at eight percent? The answer is probably no. So even though it might be positive cash flow in real life, in the calculator, it starts to go backwards slightly. Obviously, I think what you're alluding to is over time, the rent's going to go up. The debt would be paid down. Oh, 
No, that's not necessarily what I, what I was alluding to. But it was more like the concept of adding it back. So, right, but rather than getting five hundred dollars added back to your income statement, you might get four hundred dollars added back. And yes, they might be pressure testing you at a higher interest rate. And so, even if in real life those two numbers completely, if it was just one hundred percent perfectly neutral, right, you may end up on paper in the calculation being negative. And so then you've got to be able to come up with the spread. That's the way the banks are going to be thinking about it. They're going to be like, well, you know, if we stress test this, maybe it's actually negative by two grand a month or whatever it is. So we're going to then take that away and we're going to assume that they're going to be $2,000 a month less uh, with less personal income coming in. So we're just trying to rationalize that idea of the, the, the rental income does get added back to your total income profile, but not in a, not in an absolutely pure set. Well, you, you're, your um your your what do you call it your um bloody uh, your payslip right your payslip will consider like oh well that's how much money they earn but your rent they'll go well let's knock that down a bit and let's assume that's a little bit higher and they'll kind of fluff it so you you in real terms it won't be added back in a hundred percent yeah so I mean I just brought up calculator on the screen I've just gone five hundred grand at eight percent is forty thousand dollars a year in repayments mm-hmm. uh, and that's just interest. That works out to about seven hundred and sixty bucks, or seven, sorry, seven sixty nine a week. And so, in the calculator, if you sort of think, right, my expenses are going up by seven hundred and sixty nine dollars, but mm. then my income's only going up by four hundred, and so that's not a sustainable calculation. Mm. And that that's where it starts to uh, reduce your borrowing capacity over time. Got it. Are there any kind of hacks about how people can get around this? Like, is it just a case of like? Just buy properties that are like stupidly high cash flow or are there any, any other kind of – maybe what's some unconventional strategies or tactics that you might know around how to get past this because some people do build significantly large property portfolios. Yeah. So one of the – I'll loop back that idea that I thought of before was around alt doc loans and that is a way mm. that you can – that self-employed people can navigate the concept that you're talking about and improve their borrowing capacity. Uh, when we do the numbers, so alt doc loans for people that don't know, when you know most of the loans that people get are what what's called full doc, and that just means full documentation. All your pay slips, tax returns, bank statements, works. Alt doc just means alternative documentation. Uh, you know, BAS statements, self declarations, accountants letters, that sort of thing. Uh, now, those type of loans typically have high interest rates, you know, half a percent or a percent higher than what you might normally get. But when we go through and we do the numbers with a lot of self-employed people, what we normally find is it's cheaper to pay another half a percent on your home loan than it is to donate 30% of your income to the government or 40% to the government. And so getting the loans approved, or the, the way that I'm circling back is making decisions based on the bank's checklist rather than what the interest rate is, is important. So each bank has a different checklist. Send us one payslip, send us two payslips, that sort of thing. For self-employed people, if you go and get a full documentation loan, they'll say, give us the last two years tax returns. Some banks will use the lowest of the last two years. And you know that could be financial year 2021. We're in 2023 now. It's not reflective of what is going on in your business right now. So we can provide alternative documentation get the loan approved now in what's this may of 2023 or the and and have a slightly higher interest rate by going through that process if we wait six seven weeks we'd cross financial year again then we can go and lodge a new tax return now we've got a different piece of paper it says we earn a whole lot more than what we did two years ago i mean you can use that different piece of paper 
to get a loan with a cheaper interest rate. But to get that piece of paper in the first place, you have to lodge your tax return and you might have to pay a thirty dollars or $40,000 tax bill that comes with it. And so people look at this, or self-employed people especially, look at this and go, well, it's only going to cost me 100 bucks a month more to use my BAS statements. So how about I just take 100 bucks a week more and I'll lodge my tax return next year. And not only that, when I lodge it, rather than paying my, my 40 grand tax bill or whatever it might be, I'll just go on a payment plan. And so it works out cheaper paying an extra percent on your, your home loan than donating 30, 40% to the government. Love that. That's definitely a hack. Well, well done. That was a good, that was a good, that was a good contribution. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, go on. Oh, well, the, the, you know, the different banks checklist, some, some banks want to see your living expense statements. Some don't want to see your living mm. expense statements. You know, one pay slip, two slip. There's all these different pieces of paper and the numbers that the banks pull off those pieces of paper, they can't unsee things. So if you select a bank where you're only providing the pieces of paper that they're asking for, they're only going to see certain things and that will result in a particular borrowing capacity. Might be a bit higher than what you would get if you went to a different bank with a different checklist. Love it. Final question. I'm going to ask you for your, for some wild speculation here. What do you think is going to happen with interest rates this year? They're going to go down. They're going to stay up. What's happening? Everyone wants to know, and everyone knows that you've got a secret line to the RBA. Yeah, let me get my crystal ball. I remember the same questions last GFC, and I remember mm. people talking about the rates go up. I had property. I had loans. I was watching it go up as well. Uh, nobody knows the answer. I think, once again... Mm-hmm people realising that there is no right answer and just recognising, hey, the rates could go up a little bit more or, hey, we might have reached the pinnacle. It's going to, people are going to start breaking and it's going to go down again because it's just not sustainable. Uh, Mm. But nobody knows exactly where that point is and when it's going to occur and just being Mm. super comfortable with that fact. One thing that I would throw into the mix is I am just now in the last month or so starting to uh, have clients come in where they can't afford to refinance the loans they've already got. So where they mm. got a loan a few years ago and the bank stress tested them at 6 or 7%, now they're coming back to refinance. They're getting stress tested at 8 9 10%. They're not passing anymore. So they're stuck with the loans mm. they've already got. Um, for those people that are rolling off fixed rates, you know, there's a lot of concern about this. A lot of the time, it's actually wiser and cheaper to break the fixed rate now, three months early, whatever it might be, so that you can re-extend and actually qualify for a loan and refinance the debt now while you still can, rather than, you know, what happens if we wait another three, four, five, six months time? Uh, if the rates keep going up, you might not qualify for a loan anymore. You might be stuck with yeah. what you've got, but the, but the opposite also could be true. Rates could go down, and you might have like you might put yourself on a fixed rate that's like really quite high, and rates could drop, and then you're like, oh my god, I'm stuck on this stupidly high rate. So I mean, it's a hard hard call. It is. I found recently the fixed rates for one year have been super popular, um, and people. It's just about people recognizing it. Are we there yet, or are we not there yet? And it's it, we're we're not far off. I think most people would agree that we're, we're mm. somewhere in the scope of topping out. So let's yeah. go and look. Let's just pause for 12 months. We'll lock it in for 12 months. Yes, it might go down. We're not going to be out by that much. You know, it might go down a couple of months' mm. time or whatever. We're only going to be fixed at a slightly higher rate for six months or so if we get it wrong. It's not yeah. the end of the world. So I've, I have found a lot of people quite happy to take a 12-month fixed rate at the moment. 
Yeah, yeah, it's super interesting. I think the general consensus is we are probably somewhere around the top at the moment. Now, what happens, whether we stay at the top for a while or whether we drop off, who, who knows? But I think everyone was a little surprised with the last rate rise. And they were like, well, hang on a second, hang on a second. So I, I dare say I think we're coming, we're coming close to at least starting to flatten out. So, and in my opinion, likely to drop off after that. So, and the other thing is probably you know everybody concentrates on the relationship between the Reserve Bank decisions and what it does to your home loan, but there's actually a hell of a lot mm. more factors. There's international, you know, exchange rates between different countries and what that does to our important export expenses, um, balance of trade. Like there's there's all these huge factors that go into their decision. It's not necessarily about Joe and Mary and their local mm. home loan. And what takes priority as a nation over what takes priority for your own individual. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Matt, I've enjoyed this conversation. Lots of good nuggets in there. Really appreciate your time. If people want to reach out to you, how would they do that? Where would they go? You can give us a bell, uh, 0753456682. All my details are on the website, thehappyfinancecompany.com.au. Uh, shoot us an email, send us a, give us a call. We'll say hello. Cool. Be good. No, no, awesome. Indeed. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate your time. See you no soon. worries, mate. Good chat.